Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and today I'm sharing the mic with Jose Leal. And Jose is the co-founder of Radical Purpose, an organization designed to help businesses and employees cultivate growth aligned to their purpose. This is something that I'm personally very passionate about, something that I was able to become familiar with in my tech career. And so it's awesome to be sharing the mic with you, Jose, and learning more about you, how you got to this point with Radical Purpose. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Um, You said that so well. I need to I need to record that and and use it myself. I'll I'll copy and paste it over to you. <laughs> I always find it hard to describe myself, much less the work we do. Oh, I totally uh, so. understand that. I think one of the hardest things that I've learned as a podcaster who's also trying to do more guest spots is what do I say about myself? I think it's hard for a lot of people to praise yourselves and also to come up with a succinct version of what it is that you want to say about yourself without being like, here's my entire life story. Exactly. So I was just going to tell you my entire life. Please, story. by all means. I mean, that is what this show is for. But, you know, I, I think I do think it's a great segue, though, because when we first spoke, something that really intrigued me about your story was just beyond our professional lives. There was just sort of a lot of alignment across the board. But in terms of who you are and how you've gotten to where you are in your life, you were similar to myself. Like you had spent a decent amount of time in the tech space and you had done quite well for yourself there, but ultimately that wasn't where you felt drawn to with your purpose. So could you share a little bit about how you navigated that experience? Well, if you don't mind, I just want to sort of lay the groundwork a little bit. Please, by all means. First of all, I'm an immigrant, right? So I'm an immigrant twice over. I immigrated from uh, Portugal at eight to the United States and grew up here and then uh, moved to Toronto, lived there for 25 years. So I was an immigrant again. And really, most of my career was in Toronto. And it was um, this entrepreneurship spirit that I had from, you know, 16 years old, my first business to um you know, having the an opportunity to run a um, an organization in Toronto that was based on the architectural background that I had working for architects dealing with custom residential homes and so forth here in the Bay Area. May and I ask then, a question real quick? Sure. Um, you mentioned being an entrepreneur at the age of 16. Um, what were you doing then? Anything in particular <laughs> that is worth worth mentioning? Well, it's so I wanted to be an architect so bad that I had taken... Uh, every course that I could back then, it was still you would do mail order, okay. And bring just it to, back. <laughs> just, just give, just to give you a sense of my age. There was no internet back right. then, and so um, you would literally send your exams out and mail them, and then they would correct them, and then they would send you your results, and then the next the <laughs> next uh, thing. Anyway, so I did that when I was like 14 years old. Oh, wow. And uh, so it was called the correspondence course. 
And at the same time, I was taking as and practicing as much as I could um, architectural drafting. And so what I did at 16 was I reached out to, I, I set up a shingle at the age of 16 and said, I can do architectural drawings for architects and engineers. So I started calling these local architects and engineers and saying, I can do your um, details. Details are the small portions of the building that mm-hmm. that they tend to hate doing because they're they're not interesting. Grunt work. Grunt work. And so um, I got a bunch of clients. Wow. I, was, I started doing drawings for architects and engineers and wound up working for some of them in the evenings, working actually in their offices as well, not just doing the, the remote work that I was doing. That's really and, cool. I think just to interject there, I think it's really fascinating Thank you for sharing that. And I'm glad that I asked because I feel like that probably will transcend throughout this conversation. The fact that you followed this passion that you had, recognizing that this was something that was interesting and important to you. And to do something like that, particularly that level of interest with that level of investment, um, like emotional investment and intention at such a young age is really really inspirational. I think a lot of people probably aren't doing that. I mean, I certainly wasn't. I was like scooping ice cream or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, at, at age nine, I sort of said to my parents, I want to be an architect. And the truth is, I, I'm not sure I understood fully what an architect was at age nine. Yeah, yeah. No, and, that's and, fair. <laughs> and they sure as heck didn't uh, based on their background, you know, and but they encouraged me. So my dad built my first drawing board um for, awesome. for, and 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 t-square like i said i want one of these and they were like we couldn't afford it so he's like but i can build you one yeah um, and so and he then gave me his shed to to have as my own workroom uh drafting space i mean it was pretty cool so that's great so, to have that support too yeah exactly and so that's what it was it was this reciprocal relationship between my parents and i that gave me that uh, freedom and that strength to be able to do those things. And so, um, yeah, at 16, I did that. And then I worked for an architectural firm. They were designing some software. Um, and it became apparent that I, I kind of figured out how to use this. And I took on to it pretty well. Um, and uh, so I was offered the rights to the license for that software in canada oh wow and that's what started my consulting from at a really young age my clients didn't know i was that young but i was (laughs) 21 years old and i was doing uh consulting to architects and engineers about on uh, not online pardon me but uh, uh digital drafting right oh that's so cool yeah and so i did that for a number of years and then uh at some point i realized that the architectural space goes up and down with the with the the market and so if nobody's buying buildings or or renting or whatever um then no, there is no work in the architectural space and so my clients we were going through in Canada through a bit of a of a, a downturn in the market and so we um I connected with one of my clients uh lawyers who was a, a real estate lawyer that worked for this larger organization and we both said, wow, what are we going to do? Because these guys aren't doing so well. No no one's doing so well. And we decided to look at the internet as an opportunity. And we both thought at the time that 
the work we were going to be doing was in the architectural space mm -hmm. uh, and just doing it online because a lot of the problems that existed in the architectural and uh, engineering space were problems with data transfer. Everything happened on these pieces of paper and you had to fly them and drive them and transfer them and all of this stuff. And we're like, wow, we could transfer these files digitally. Over yeah. The internet. And we Game can changer. organize projects through the internet and all of that stuff. And so we did. Um, and then we realized in short order and within six months, we realized there's no B2B in the internet yet. Right. Uh, this was the early 90s. And so um, we decided to find somebody who would work on this with us in uh, in a, a business to consumer space, because that's really where the internet was in the mid 90s. And one of our colleagues said, my father works in the automotive space. Why don't you guys take a look at that? And we did. They became our partners. And we started what was called AutoNet at the time. And uh, that was acquired uh, by a conglomerate, a media conglomerate. Mm -hmm. um, in in this in Canada, it was known as Sun Media, which was then acquired by um, by another corporation uh, called Quebecor at the time. And I became um, over a number of years and in downturns and everything else, I became VP responsible for digitizing the newspapers, 250 newspapers across the country. Wow. Um, and uh, and and you know building them websites and getting them to change their business models and all of that in order to digitize them. And so that's the world, that's the digital world I was working in was, yeah. was that process. So I went from, um, you know, analog architecture to really a paradigm shift to digital architecture. Yeah. And then another paradigm shift from analog media to digital media. Wow. And and so that was really working in both cases, working on that bleeding edge, if you will, yeah, of of that transformation. Yeah, what a time um, to be involved in that and to be invested in that and emotionally, mentally invested in that and being part of that on the cutting edge. It's funny because being the age that I am, I'm an elder millennial. I'm 37. I remember the shift from analog to digital. It was sort of this gradual progression in my mind. We didn't have the internet, I think, until maybe I was 13 or so. Um, some of my friends had it sooner. They were on AOL. Obviously, that's where anybody was. Um, right. And I think a lot about what you're saying and how the little details that I was able to sort of um, just elude, I guess, as being the age that I am, where thinking about transferring the information for these builds and that you have such a higher margin for error if you're relying on manual intervention at so many points and understanding how important just through my own career in tech optimization through software as you're seeing it more with AI now. Um, but it's like, those are things that I can completely just never have thought of in my life. Then I think about younger generations and it's like, that must be next to unfathomable to, exactly. to them, exactly. right? It really is such a, it, it feels like 
such a short amount of time to have so much drastic change when I look back on it, because it feels like once we got kind of pushed into that tech bubble and and everything went online, that it really just sort of was like, there's no, there's no stopping it. And right. the position that you were in being acquired and then taking on this more significant role. And as you said, sort of having these paradigm shifts in that process, when, when we originally spoke, um, I believe that you mentioned that also came with its challenges, particularly around like where you were needing to, what the different types of responsibilities you had in your role in particular, like as a manager or an authority figure in the business and needing to, um, I think you said kind of make cuts, whether you had to do layoffs and things like that. Mm -hmm. And that was a, it's, if I recall correctly, that was a turning point for you in recognizing that that wasn't really filling your cup anymore. Yeah, and, and it was it was that it compounded by the fact that I had never really worked in a corporation, nor mm -hmm. that I was cut out to be in a corporation. I right? can understand that on a visceral and, level. <laughs> and so, so for me, you know, I, I never went to college, right? Because I was doing all those other things. Well, I was going to ask if you had a formal university yeah. education or anything. No. And so for me, the the um, the opportunities kept availing themselves. And I kept saying yes, in part because it was like, why are they asking me? Like, there's 10 other guys that are much more qualified than me from the traditional perspective. Mm -hmm. What I realized was that that passion that I had at 16 was still in me and it was visible to other people. Mm -hmm. And so you know, when, when we met and we were talking about, well, we're going to have to clean out house again and get rid of all the management and whose head is still sticking up. And very often it was me. I mean, for 10 years, we did six rounds of cuts. And so hundreds of people were, were being laid off. We'd acquire somebody and then we'd lay off a bunch of them. Mm -hmm. We'd get new management. We'd lay them all off. And, we, you know, in that same cycle. And because the first few years I was in uh, in my own little division, which was acquired, um, you know, for the first two or three years, that was sort of hidden away and safe. Um, and we went through two or three rounds of management. And so then I became, you know, the general manager of that division and found myself doing the cuts, found myself going through the the, the machination. And you know, the decision to leave years later was, you know, round six when I was flying out to Edmonton, Alberta, and having to fly back into Toronto to get over to London, Ontario, um, to to finish layoffs that day because we needed to make announcements the following day. And I, you know, whenever it was time to do this, it would be, um, you know, a couple of weeks of torture, not sleeping trying to figure out how this was all going to impact everybody mm -hmm. because I could never really believe this. This isn't personal BS, right? Yeah. Sure as hell is personal. If this isn't personal, what could be right? If, yeah. if destroying somebody's livelihood, at least temporarily isn't personal, then what is right? I love that you so just I said that it, because it's so true. It's so easy. I think from, an objective perspective, you're not in the throes of it to be like, 
well, it's fine, right? They'll get another job or they'll figure it out, but you don't know every single person's circumstances. And even if you are at a company that is doing well and you know the salaries, like you still don't understand the impact that that has on an individual, whether it's financially or emotionally or just mentally for any other reason. Because I graduated in 2008 and it was the peak of the recession, I mean, I came into my career with a lack mindset. It was like anything you can get, take it because you don't know if you'll have a job. And so your comment about sort of like, well, they're looking at me going, yes, you're qualified. And you're thinking, okay, I should take this. Right. And it's like, that's how I felt. I, that's how I progressed through my tech career. And I was like, if somebody wants me and they're going to pay me more and I can take on more responsibility and grow my career, then I'm just going to do it. And along that path, similar to you, you're starting to be like, but why am I doing this? Like, is, does this feel right to me? Exactly. Yeah, I, I that trip to, to Edmonton was the straw that broke the camel's back. I, I I woke up that morning at the hotel just horrified with the idea that I was gonna lay off, you know, a couple of dozen people that I had never met in my life. Like they reported into somebody else that reported into somebody else that reported into me. Wow. And and because we were gonna be doing a wholesale whole bunch of division pieces cutting i was the one that had the benefit of <laughs> going out there and, and do this so walking into that boardroom and have everybody being excited to meet me and say oh finally we get to meet you and just being so you know and then having to say that you know i i got on that plane back to ontario and it was like what the hell am i doing with this why am i why am I pretending that this is okay? And yeah. it wasn't okay. It wasn't okay for me. It wasn't okay for them. And it wasn't okay for the organization because we had actually set ourselves up and set them up for failure. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a um, a situation where we we tried something and it failed, but what we tried, we we knew was going to work or we thought it was going to work. It was building things with the risk factor held by others, not mm-hmm. by us. Well, by it's like it, it makes people a lot more expendable. And exactly. it's to your point, it's sort of the collateral damage by mm-hmm. design, knowing that this is just the way it's restructured or the the direction that we're going now. And, and this is the casualty. And it's hard to make peace with that, I imagine, particularly to your point. I mean, never having met those people, having your first interaction with them, and then having to be the bearer of this news. It's like that, I imagine, not only causes conflict, as you said, for yourself, but also do you feel like that outside of the professional realm, that that also sort of made you question like elements of your own integrity? And not to say that you're not you're not somebody with integrity, but I, I feel like if I were in that same position, it's like, I think I would just be having like a very moral crisis. Yes. And um, so I, I, I cried most of the flight back. That flight from Edmonton was, I couldn't stop crying. And, and it wasn't, it was what you just said, but it wasn't just that it was that I couldn't be there, which historically I would be. Mm-hmm. I couldn't be there to explain. I couldn't be there to to comfort them. I had the reason I was the one that was asked to do this was because at some point the CEO had said, "You're the best at doing this." 
And I couldn't get that out of my head. That I'm the best at doing this. I just did a really shitty version of this. And I don't want to be good at this. So can I ask a question about that? I imagine based on what I know about you in our brief couple of conversations that you were good at this because you're a compassionate human being who communicates well. Is that the takeaway that you had where it's like you could deliver the news in a more graceful way? Um, Because I imagine that you're good at it because of that or you're good at it because you're real effing cutthroat. And I don't know that I can picture you being super cutthroat, but maybe, maybe in a previous life. (laughs) No, no, it was because I cared. And for me, it wasn't because I was trying to care. It was because I, I couldn't imagine treating people without respect it's and without, way. yeah. And so it just, it was, it was the, you know, I would do things like, okay, I know this person's going to take it really hard. So a week or two before I would like, you know, Hey, just so you know, things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, things are going to happen. Am I going to be impacted? Well, I can't tell you, but, you know, and so people would be, let down a little bit easier and yeah and they would um they could prepare for it they they wouldn't have you know these tremendous emotional moments when it was happening which would then make them feel guilty and ashamed for their reactions and so forth yeah not to protect myself but to protect them right yeah um and so because i was already tore up like <laughs> it didn't matter how they were going to react i i was tore up yeah. um but but knowing that I couldn't be there for this group of people in that way, um, just it just sort of like that was it. That was that was the end of it for me. And so I, on that flight back, I went, "That's it. I can't do this anymore. I don't care what they want to do. I don't care how they're going to do it." And I just essentially, you know, I think the next day, pretty much, I reached out and said, "Hey guys, I want out of here." And let's start figuring so out. So it was that quick. It was that quick. It took a year to make it happen because they still, they still, uh, I still had shares, uh, park shares in the old company. Yeah. And yeah. I knew <laughs> that if they stayed there, I wasn't going to get a penny for them. Right. And so right. I wound up having to sell that and all that stuff. But, but it, and plus we needed to make sure we did how to transfer of, of the logic of the knowledge and everything else that was there but but um yeah it was pretty much that quick i mean i remember coming back and uh and saying to my wife like this is the worst day of my life and i'm not going to uh, do this anymore and she tried to talk me out of it because you know we were getting we we were having a good life Uh, you know that's what happens in corporations is i've come to believe that the reason People in management make big salaries is to make it so hard to leave when those days happen. I totally agree with you. And I don't, having worked in a variety of levels in tech, I think it's even graduated beyond management. It's golden handcuffs. The idea is that you will sacrifice and compromise in ways that you wouldn't if the financial security wasn't there. Working at Amazon was a great example of that. The way their compensation works, you get your first two years. I was working corporate. So let's say Mm -hmm. 
generally speaking, because I was in the HR tech side of things, I know a little bit more about it. So generally, if you're like at a certain level in a certain type of role, you will get two years, you have some sort of sign-on bonus, then you have your base salary. And um, during the first two years, you get 5% of your stock vested. Um, or it, the first year, sorry, you get 5% of your stock vested, I think, and then 15% the second year, and then 20% the third year. And then the um, the fourth year, it's like rapid fire, you now get the rest of your stock. Right. They're hedging their bets that you leave the end of year two, or the end of year four, guaranteed. The people who stay longer than that are more committed to any business than I ever could be for any amount of money. And I say this specifically related to the stock because the thing that I think is important to note about Amazon is that at least historically what they've done is cap the salary at like, I think at the time it was like 160 grand per year. Stock then makes up whatever the difference is to get you to whatever varying level you're at. And that right. might that might be different based on certain locations. Like I think Bay Area was a little bit higher, but generally right. speaking, that's what it is. And so I remember going in, I was miserable after my first year and I was like, I'll leave all the stock on the table. Screw it. I don't care. I just can't keep doing this. And then I switched teams and it got a little better. And I was like, fine, I can make it till this mark, till this mark, till this mark. And then you get so close to the end. You're like, well, I may as well stay because at this point, what difference does it make? But every time I had to negotiate that with myself, I lost a little part of my sanity and my soul. And it's like, I can't relate directly to what you experienced, but I understand that feeling of it's holding you hostage to something that doesn't align to who you are as a person. Exactly. And as soon as you feel the opportunity to release yourself from that, it is like, it can't happen fast enough. 100%. And that I've, I've come, you know, that that's really what happened was that I, I left and I couldn't figure out why this happened. And so I started to do some research into, well, how did I become that person? How did I become the person that could do that? How did I keep swallowing year after year after year and damaging who I was? And and why did that happen? And that to me became sort of this thing where I couldn't let it go. Every time I'd start I tried to do a couple other projects after that, um, startups, and and I just couldn't get into it because I felt like, no, I'm just going to do the same thing. Until I know what happened, I'm just going to do the same thing again. And so I've spent five years, well, now seven years, um, just working on this, trying to understand what is it that that causes us, not just me back then. Um, to continue to do these things, even though we know that we can't, that we shouldn't, that it's not the right thing. And, and then how do we understand ourselves? If there's a, there's something in me that doesn't want to do this thing and that thing isn't good. What's that thing in me that, right. that needs to have a voice? What is it? What was it that I was hearing in my head saying, but you don't want to do this. This isn't the right thing. This doesn't feel right. What the hell are you doing? Mm-hmm. And then I used to blame back then. I used to blame myself for not being strong enough. Right? Why is it that my colleagues can do this and I can't? Why is it that they they seem okay with this and I don't? Yeah. Well, I found out that they couldn't either. 
It's just that they were good at hiding it. Mm-hmm. So we we're all good at hiding it. Yeah, that's a really powerful statement, Jose. And I think a lot of people are still very good at hiding it. Or we're two things. I think sometimes we're complacent and complicit. And we just allow ourselves to fall into the trap of this is the way that it is. So what am I supposed to do? And I think with that mentality, that's forget the the financial or the security side of it. We convince ourselves that there is no other way a lot of the time. Right. And it's not entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. I just ended my my tech contract. I'm fully in the throes of it right now. And I'm having moments of panic here and there because I understand that the strain is there. But the thing is, is I've been broke as a joke and employed and I felt more stressed than I do right now. And it was a function of that recognition within myself that you you just spoke to and that need to understand on a deeper level why I was so dissatisfied with the way my professional life was going, because that bleeds into your personal life. It doesn't just stay there. You don't compartmentalize that feeling of I'm not fulfilling my purpose. I don't feel connected to what I'm doing. That is something that in my experience permeates every other area of your life. And frankly, it's it's the catalyst for pulling you out of it. It has to be because you're following that nudge that's just like, this isn't for you. But when you don't know what is for you, it's that much more daunting to take that leap and decide. And when you mentioned that you, you know, you started doing research and you started trying to figure out like, why though, what is it that I'm experiencing? Where did you start with that? Like, obviously you've come to this place of purpose and I, and I want to dive into that, but I imagine that was an evolution to get to that place. Oh yeah. Um, well, I just want to say something to what you just said, because you said, you know, that my professional and my per- personal, um, this idea of a professional life is bullshit. It doesn't exist. It's a fallacy. We have lied to ourselves and to each other about a professional life. It's a way to frame our ability to become inhuman. Slow clap on that one. I uh, I love that. I think that is such a powerful statement because it's how we all get into the grind and convinced that like you don't have to think about what you're doing, just do it. Exactly. And and what I said earlier, you know, about my colleagues would say it's not personal; it's just business. And in that very moment, I would feel like bullshit. It is absolutely personal. Everything is personal. There is no me that isn't personal. That's a huge statement, and you're totally right. Right? And we've built this imagery that separates those things. And so for me, you you ask, where did did I start? I started initially thinking, there's there's a, a spiritual way to look at this. There's a psychological way to look at this. And I I dove, you know, I, I became that 16-year-old kid that wanted to do that, that all that research and learn about whatever it is that I was working on. And I I then moved away, you know, got divorced, and my father died, and my mom had a stroke and moved back to Portugal for a year. And I connected with with the situation with my mom because it was the first time that I was 
um, there, that intimate with with her needs and and everything and things that I, I never thought I would have to do. But what I realized was I was happier there. As much as it was horrible, it was it felt good. In in other words, her have have helping her walk again, helping her cope with the the situation she was in was very physically difficult and emotionally difficult for me. I can only imagine. But I still would go to bed feeling better than the situation. And I and that started me thinking, it's like, what is it that I'm doing now that I wasn't doing then? And what I was doing was I was helping. And then I wasn't, I was hurting. And that question led to, over the years, uh, what is now clearer to me, I didn't have this language back then, but what I realized was that I'm not a person. I'm life itself. I'm a piece of life. We've all evolved from the same thing. We're all pieces of life. We, we've started to think of ourselves as these things that are absent from the, the workings of life. And as we've evolved, the thing that life has always done, whether it's our own or any other species, is help life. It's served life. If it hadn't, life would not have continued. It would not have continued to evolve. That the the way that we as human beings succeed is through a set of functions, life functions that are about homeostatic balance. Mm -hmm. And that we we feel as feelings. So whenever there's something out of balance, we feel a negative feeling. And when there's something in balance, we feel a positive feeling. And that's that's our body. That's life itself evolved to provide us with that feedback, that signal of what's in balance, what's out of balance. And that understanding that we are about serving life, that whenever we're feeling bad means we're not serving life, either our own or someone else's. That's incredible. And I have to recommend now to you, I had a guest on recently who's a neuroscientist, Dr. Mark Williams, and he has a book that just came out. I haven't had a chance to get it yet. It's very recent, but it's called The Connected Species. And it's basically the entire premise of what you're saying, I'm sure broken down into like a more scientific element Mm -hmm, than I would mm -hmm. be capable of explaining. But the idea that we generate life through our service to our world, the people in it and those surrounding us and the organisms in it really. Right. And, um, one of the things that he emphasized repeatedly and I loved hearing was how as a species, like we are collaborative, we need each other to help, to, to grow, to evolve, to become, we needed it to get where we are today. Exactly, And so you know, philosophically, there's obvious alignment in the way that I see the world and work and things like that, that you're sharing. But 
there's something I think to be said for the fact that there is an innate part of who we are as humans that wants us to fulfill that service to each other and to ourselves and to the the community in which we're in. And when I think about the way that corporations operate and it's not just big corporations. I mean, I've worked at startups that are cutthroat and nutty mm-hmm. and it's just, it's bad. And we strip away the sense of independence and choice and opportunity from people because we're just kind of trying to shove this square peg in a round hole and act like everybody fits here. And you can dress it up with all of the company culture claims that you want. But at the end of the day, <laughs> what makes a company, in my experience, worthwhile is giving people the space to play to their strengths. And those strengths are not solely like what you are qualified to do from a business perspective, but the soft skills, as they call them, are arguably more important. I mean, I my sister and I joke around that likability in the workplace is like the best thing for you to have. It's like not being a keener and trying to get everybody to like you, but being a likable person so that when you inevitably make a mistake or don't do something as well as you could have, or maybe you're just having a down day or something, people aren't spiteful of that, but maybe they're more willing to help and they're more empathetic and they're more understanding because they know that you would show up and do the same thing for them. And I think that that that's something that because the way businesses operate, especially I think with the with the advent of the internet and how much more things are expected to happen quickly and aggressively and honestly, and I'm sure you know this just as well as anybody else, unreasonably so, where you right. start cutting corners and you forget the impact that it has on the people that are in the seats doing that job every single day. Right. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I would add that one of the, the things that's shocked me, um, so much so that I actually had a, a small bout of depression um, after doing this work for a few weeks, um, was these functions. Uh, there's a neuroscientist by, by the name of Antonio Damasio down in uh, University of Southern California. He, he essentially says that this homeostatic functions, these balancing functions, they operate not consciously, they operate behind the scenes. So it's not that life wants us to behave a certain way. We are behaving a certain way. It's it's not an option, right? We we don't get to choose whether we feel something. Right. Right? We don't get to choose whether we um, will jump to save a child that's about to get run over. It, we don't, th- these aren't choices, right? I, I now have two stepdaughters and I don't choose whether I feel like, like I miss them, right? One of them is going to come back and visit us from, from uh, college uh, in a week. I just can't wait, you know, and I don't choose to feel that way, right? right. It's just, it's how my organism was built. All of our organisms are built slightly differently. But that's what operates in us, right? What we do choose is to understand from a, a what would normally be called a conscious mind. And really what I've learned is that our conscious mind is more of a narrative mind. And so I'm, I'm not even calling it 
a consciousness anymore, a conscious mind, but I'm calling it a narrative mind because what it does is it assembles stories. The research shows that we have this narrative ability to explain what happened inside. So when asked, you know, there's this beautiful research about, um, you know, we're going to show you something uh, and you're going to click on it, but we're, you've had your brain severed. Have you ever heard of this? Mm-hmm. Where they split the brain because these are people who have uh, epileptic uh, seizures. Okay. And they're so debilitating that it spreads from one side of the brain to the other. And then they, they it just happens too often and they're mm-hmm. really this debilitated. My sister, by the way, has uh, my uh, middle sister has this. Um, but hers is under control, but these are for people who the medication wouldn't be able to to control. And so they would do this, especially in the 50s and 60s. What they realized is when they severed the brain, um, the right eye is connected to the left side of the brain mm-hmm. and the left to the right. And so if you showed the the, the two different eyes something different, you would get a different answer. Oh, wow. Right? So you would say, I I just showed you the word horse on one side. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, I show you the word um, house. Okay? And then I would ask you, um, you know, what has four legs? And you'd say, I don't know. It's a house designed have four legs, right? Because it was showing you that to your It didn't register. Mind. Yeah. Oh, wow. Right? But then it would the question afterwards would be, here's a whole bunch of animals. Which one is the one you want? And they would pick horse. And they'd go, why did you pick horse? Oh, because, you know, I used to have a horse when I was a kid. The narrative mind doesn't know where it got the data. So it makes it up. It gives an explanation. That could lead down such a massive rabbit hole that I will not oh, go down at this me. exact moment. But man. trust me, I did. <laughs> and after I went down that rabbit hole, I went, oh, my gosh, I now understand that we are essentially at the, that level. We're essentially big, huge AI inside an organic capsule. Yeah. And, well, it's like we only have so much control over it, right? And I think that that's where if I tie it to the nature of the work that you're doing with Radical Purpose, one of the questions that I have for you is, do you, because I have my own opinion on this, but it's not rooted in in much science at this point. This is just sort of experiential on my part. But from what you've learned through the work that you're doing and your overall experience, do you feel like purpose is something that you're sort of born with versus something that... Um, you know, I guess the way that I want to ask it is, do you feel like it's innate to you um, versus something that like maybe we cultivate over time? So I believe that purpose is built in us and not because it's something spiritual or or otherworldly, but because we're each built with a slightly different makeup. So for example, I, I like to use this example on Bear with me. It's a, it's a bit awkward, but no, please. Um, so you, you t- 
you look at a uh, you know a souped up truck. It's been jacked up. It's got the big wheels. Mm-hmm. You know the whole thing. And then you look at this little tiny family car, right? Just basic, good old uh, family car. And you look at them and you go, "Well, that's obviously got a different purpose than that one does." Right. I mean, it, right? It just it just makes sense. It's got a different purpose. You you, you say. Well, was it born with a different purpose? Yeah, right? It was It was built differently. Yeah. And so we're all born differently. Some of us are more about belonging. Others are more about impact. Others are more about becoming. All of the things that we, that cause us, these life functions that cause our behavior, they are made up differently. Just as I have, well, I used to have a lot of hair. Um, just as I used to have hair and and be a certain height and a certain build and all of that, our neurological makeup is just as diverse as our outward features. It didn't stop at the skin. Right. 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 It didn't stop at the musculature or, or the bone structure. It's throughout us. And just as we're diverse physically, we're also diverse neurologically. That's where our purpose comes from. It's how we were built, both physically and neurologically. Like, I'm never going to play basketball. That's certainly not my purpose. Right. Right? Um, And what I realized looking back personally after the research was my purpose was to be that person who cared for those people because I had that in me. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because the other people chose not to. It was because those other people didn't have the same level of life functions that that compelled them to do it. I felt compelled. I didn't yeah. think about it. I didn't sit there and go, oh, I should be a really nice guy and and take care of these people. I mean, it was horrible. Because in fact, what I was thinking was the opposite. I'm such a weakling for, you know, worrying about these people for two weeks and not sleeping and and being nervous as hell about everything and thinking, well, what a weakling, what a poor manager I am, what a blah, blah, blah. So I was beating myself for that thing that I had, which was a strength. Well, it's the narrative, right? Like that's the narrative you can tell yourself. That's the narrative. And if you understand that, you've just empowered yourself. That narrative, understanding yourself at a purpose level, allows you to change the narrative about who you are. A hundred percent. One hundred percent. I now, you know, whenever I feel a little nervous about something, I go, oh, what is it that I don't? that my organism doesn't know about what's about to happen. And I like, like that. Oh, okay. So what is it? And poof, it's gone. Yeah. Well, my I nervous, think. Oh, sorry, my nervousness. No, I was just going to say my nervousness, it doesn't so much disappear. It knows that I'm looking at it. Mm-hmm. And when I look at it and give it voice in the narrative space, it goes, okay, you're looking at me. That's good. That's what I wanted. That's why I came. The reason I popped up that sense of imbalance 
was simply for you to pay attention that you need to do some work in that space. And that's as long as you're doing work in that space, that the narrative side is now trying to figure out what's going on. It goes, gotcha. That, that's all I needed. Yeah. It's yeah, an yeah. amazing experience to have that. And, and you being able to have that narrative ability to understand that. Yeah, that's such a great perspective and insight, Jose. I love the way that you articulated it, particularly because I think when we get to those places of sort of emotional dysregulation or the discomfort that something's coming in that we often hesitate to confront um, because it is uncomfortable, that it's the more that it's sort of the root of anxiety, I guess. It's like the more you avoid it, the bigger that's going to feel. I mean, I feel that way when I have to send things to my accountant or deal with like making doctor's appointments, things that are right, adult right, responsibilities right. that just stress me out. And it's like, why does this make me uncomfortable? Why do I have so much stress around this? And those are those are very minimal things in the grand scheme of life. But on the flip side of that, when you think about, well, why am I doing this with my life? Why why have I gone down this path? Or whether that's a relationship or in a career move or whatever, mm-hmm. we we tend to just sort of take that narrative that we've told ourselves and sometimes latch onto that too much to the point where it becomes debilitating. And we need to decouple that narrative sometimes from like what our actual reality is or could be. And I think driving towards purpose for me personally was something that really changed that narrative because what you said about coming kind of full circle to wanting, you know, belonging or connection or becoming things like that. And for anybody listening, um, I'll put a link in the show notes so you guys can check out Radical Purpose. Um, Their website has a really great assessment. You can kind of get a breakdown of your purpose profile. And I had done one before, as I'd mentioned, with a different company years ago when I was at Amazon. And this was something that really propelled me into this idea of being driven by purpose and and understanding it more. And I had actually started going to therapy a year after I started that job because I was like, I don't feel fulfilled. I don't feel fulfilled. I feel like I'm capable of more and not in a way that's like demeaning towards what the skill set is that's required for that, but in that this is not what I am meant to do. This viscerally feels incorrect to me. It's misaligned. And when you get to a place where you can kind of see that in the structure of the assessment that you've created and the other one I did before, it is consistent. I I have the actual download of the other profile too. I I didn't do this before we chatted, but I definitely want to, is I want to look at kind of the comparison of what my answers were then and now, um, or like what results they produced. But at the end of the day, I went to therapy, recognized like I'm meant to connect with people. What does that look like? That was how this podcast got started. And I recognize that through more therapy, that the sense of belonging is so important to me and not just for me to belong, but to give people a a space where they can feel seen and heard. And so this idea of connection and belonging are so at the core of who I am and the root of who I am and what I want to contribute to society that it's like, there's no denying that there is something deeper than that narrative mind that is driving us to the life that we want to live. And, and again, I, I want to take a, a step back because what I realized for me, it, that was the sort of the moment where I had that bout of two or three months of depression was I had to, I had to come to the realization that the I that I kept talking about 
was the narrative mind. I was not seeing dear organism me, right? Yeah. I wasn't seeing that those functions with the feelings were actually driving my behavior. We have a very small sliver of control over what we do. It doesn't feel that way because the narrative mind plays it off differently. Back to that narrative about why I just did what I did, right? Mm-hmm. I picked horse even though this, the narrative side didn't see horse and therefore couldn't answer horse. Right. But the other side did. And when I it picked it for me, I then created this little story that said, oh, it's because, you know, I had a horse or whatever, right? It, it, the narrative mind is there to help us. And it can, as long as what we're looking at is understood. And we don't look at ourselves and understand that we are life and that these life functions are there and that they have a role and that they are. So we don't have a life purpose. We are a life purpose. That's what we are. We're that expression of life in a unique way. So to say that we have one feels like it's a separation from who I am. It's not that it's something on top of who I am. Right. It is who I am. And the functions themselves that guide our behavior, our patterns of behavior that we've evolved to do on the basis of evolutionary experience. So when we are lonely, it's because we've learned over the millennia that if we don't have people around us, it's not safe for us. Mm -hmm. That when we harm somebody and we feel guilt, because it's not good to harm others. Right. That those feelings are life itself saying, this isn't where we're supposed to go. And I go differently. You go differently. But we're still a part of life. And our ultimate purpose, whether we, our makeup is ultimate purpose, all of those feelings all of those life functions, they're there to direct us towards serving life. And whenever that's out of balance and we're not serving life, that's one of those negative feelings. And so having a narrative now for myself and the folks that we work with that that basically understand, if I'm feeling a negative feeling, some life is in jeopardy. Maybe I'm hurting myself. Maybe I'm hurting somebody else, but some way, somehow, I'm doing harm. And that applies to just about everything we do. Yeah. I mean, it's a sliding scale, right? There's because to your point, I think that's such a profound perspective and and way of stating it, Jose. And I really love it. We do have to acknowledge that, you know, sometimes you can feel that misalignment and there are things that we seemingly brush off. We don't think that they're that significant. When we continue to feel that, it's our responsibility to acknowledge that and try to understand it. And, you know, 
dissect it enough to be able to relieve ourselves from that pain or that harm or others from that pain or harm. And I mean, and those aren't the only two things, right? Like we, on the flip side of that, it's, you know, what makes us feel good? What, Mm -hmm. what makes us feel good that we want to continue doing? What are the things that make us feel fulfilled or allow us to help others? And that therefore gives us gratitude and grace. And these are the things that as individuals, I think it's so important to be able to acknowledge and that it's honestly doing the show has just been such a honestly a bit of a social experiment that I didn't even understand but it's just the amount of people who are having this very similar conversation they're they're different subjects or varying degrees of the same subject but the idea that like we have a choice in who in how we show up in the world we are who we are but what you do with that is ultimately up to you. And, and the idea of control in the circumstances of our lives, we, as you pointed out, we have very minimal. We, we want to believe that we have more than we have because that helps us feel safe. But at the end of the day, you and I both experienced very significant difficulties in life that have, have left us feeling very bad feelings, having to heal through all of that, as I'm sure many people experience, most people. And If you didn't look inward, though, if you didn't ask yourself the hard questions, if you didn't say why, though, or what can I do differently to show up in a way that makes me feel better, makes me feel more aligned, then you and I and anybody else who exists in that state of um, either trauma or pain or whatever it might be, it's like those are the people who get stuck. Like you have to continue to live, to evolve, to grow and to hold space for yourself and for others during those times so that you can get out of that narrative space and into what that actually feels like to live and be present. Absolutely. And and we've been taught about the external world, right? Periodic table, right? I I mentioned that and you have a picture in your head. You know exactly what the periodic table looks like, right? And you remember a bunch of those elements in there, right? And CO2, what's that, you know? Yeah. Uh, what's what's carbon? What's oxygen? What's hydrogen? We we know that. We've all been taught that. Those are the elements of life, and we know about them as external to us, but we don't know our own life functions, and that's the that's the gap. The gap is we have a narrative which has been serving us very well as far as being able to build and create and do all the things we've done we're speaking now over you know electronic devices connected to the internet right hundreds uh, or thousands of miles from one another because we understood the table of elements right. but we don't understand our table of elements our own life functions and how they work and what they do we know that if we look at an element that it will give us a certain signal and that signal is what we use to create these periodic tables say weight or how uh, how they reactive they are and so forth but we don't know how to look at that inside us so part of the work we're doing is not only to say yes we have a purpose But look at what that purpose is. Understand that purpose for yourself and those periodic elements of what that purpose is made up of. Yeah. Because it is your makeup of those different 
purposes, elements of purpose, the life functions, that really you can build your own narrative around. This isn't about imposing anything on anybody. This is about discovering for yourself in your own narrative around what it is that, why do you feel this way? Who are you? And being able to have that language to explain to yourself and to others, to your partners. Now my partner and I, we go, oh, yeah, my sense of belonging is a little, and she'll she'll use that term and I'll do it. And we now have an understanding of what it is that we're both feeling at a greater degree. We're certainly not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But I think if we learn it at a younger age, if we learn it and use it as part of our social interactions, and that's why we wrote the book, uh, Radical Companies, it's the idea that we can also build organizations from the radical self, from who we are, radical meaning root. We are the root of organizations. We flipped the coin. We've made it so that the organization is all power. The people are the subservient to it. What we really need to do is have the organization be subservient to the people. And that requires that we understand ourselves. Because if we don't, then we can't organize in this new way. Well, and it, we have to it, change the narrative, right? Like that's the whole thing is, is exactly. the structure has been developed to create that narrative. And it's been not even necessarily to create that narrative, but it's been abused. Let's put it that way. Right. To, to make it work in favor of the, the organization, the power dynamic, the structure that way. And it minimizes the value of the people and the things that keep it going and grow it and make it what it is. And I just, I absolutely love that you've written this book. I'll also put a link to that in the show notes. But I, the thing that I think is so incredible too about what you're doing with Radical Purpose, Jose, and this is something that from the first time we spoke, I, I think I probably mentioned as well is, you know, you you see how a lot of companies historically, they hire with the mindset of, okay, you need to have this set of qualifications. You have to pass these assessments. They do all these things trying to figure out, you know, does this person have the tactical skills to complete this job? And on a personal bias basis, we're deciding if people like fit the bill for the team or the culture or whatever it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's hard to extract our inherent biases. So I'm not going to act like that's something that we can fully do away with. But right. something that you're doing with Radical Purpose is trying to rethink, reimagine, I should say, sort of the architecture of a company, right? Like the hierarchy isn't the way that we see it today, but it's more about how do you allow a business to thrive by playing to the strengths of the individuals and rather than trying to form a specific growth trajectory around like this hierarchical model. Would that would you say that's a fairly accurate representation? I, I'm going to correct you. Okay, please do. So I'm going to little little aid here. Okay, first of all, I love those. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get you a copy. Um, but basically, what happens is everything you've just said about how that narrative evolves is true. And that narrative is this gray set of lenses. And once that narrative gets embedded in us, that's what we see. We see the narrative. We see through the narrative, mm -hmm. right? And then we flip these up. And what we see is up outside of the narrative, back to those life functions. 
And so what you've just said about the fact that um, we want this, the organization to succeed, that's actually still this lens. Because we still think that an organization is a thing that needs to succeed. Mm-hmm. What we want is life and us to succeed. It yeah. is a vehicle for us to work together, not the thing that is all important. Why does the organization need to succeed? What is it? Well, it's if we think that it's something that is going to make money and it's going to be this and that and the other, then we start to focus on its success and we become the de- at our detriment, right? We're we sit here and say, well, I need to work harder for its success. And that's part of that shift, right? We need to lift the lens and realize that the only thing that really matters is life. And all of the other bullshit is just, I'm sorry, I'm not sure if I can use that. I mean, the show is called Who the Fuck? Bullshit's fine. (laughs) (laughs) But but it, it really gets to me because we've, this narrative that we have built is all about the success of the organization and the profits and and the our ability to 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 grow our our national output and all of this other stuff when in reality all of those things are actually harming life and it's also so, honestly so much of it is a house of cards anyway it's perceived value it's not even legitimized right right and so when we talk about this what we say is an organization with this lens is something we serve. An organization with this lens is something that serves us. So what is it that we want to impact? Who do we want to impact? What's the thing we want to do? It changes the narrative sufficiently. This can't work in current organizations. It's not like we're going to go into a current organization and say, oh, how'd you like to be a radical company? Because it literally requires that we blow up that organization to be able to do it. But what we see is that there is a potential. Just as 100 years ago, we went from horse and buggy, literally 1905, there were 8,000 cars in America. By 1925, there were 18 million cars in America. Wow. So that meant we not only had to build all these cars, we had to get all that ore, we had to get all that rubber, we had to build streets because we didn't have any streets. Right. Right? We had to get gas stations all over this country because there were no gas stations. That means we had to drill for more oil because we didn't have enough. All of that happened in 20 years. There's a potential for us to rebuild what we call an organization in a short period of time, if what we do is instead of going out and digging for more oil and digging for more ore and digging for more of all the stuff that we've done over the last century, we dig in here. We dig in here. We'll find all we need to find to be able to create an organization. We can't do it by abolishing what we had and not replacing it with some other knowledge. Yeah. Right. We need a new narrative. And that new narrative is one of I understand who I am and I understand that you are like me in a sense that we both are trying to serve a life and that when we are not in balance, it's not because we're assholes, not because we're we're 
mean to, we want to be mean to each other, but because something's out of balance. So let's figure out what that is. That conversation, that narrative is one that when had well leads to organizing, not the organization, but organizing. Because once we make it a, a noun, then we're feeding that thing. Yeah, you're sort of at the mercy of it. Right. Right. Yeah. That's and so insightful. So, so for us, it's it's understanding that we want to help people see that their narrative, that lens that we've it's been instilled on us, right? We had to go to school to get that little gold star to start to have the little narrative in our heads that was like, I need to behave so I can get my little gold star. Yeah. I, I need to be nice so that I can not get, you know, told to go to the principal. I need to, and all of those things from elementary school through university, through work, it's all been the same thing. Yeah, they're just, they're all just variations of really the same sort of system. And I love that you point that out, Jose. And it's honestly, I feel like your next book should be Radical Government. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, because I mean, it, I mean, I guess really the rules probably apply across the board, right? It's, um, I think about this a lot because of how much corporations are in just control of things as they are now. And the thing that I really admire, and I know we have to wrap here, but, you know, is your ability to see that, to recognize that, to share that, and to want to offer that as perspective for people. Because the thing that, as you said, you're not going to go in, you're not going to blow up an Amazon and have them all of a sudden recognize like, this is how it should work, right? right? It's not, it doesn't happen like that. But do you see this as an opportunity where like you're working with new founded companies, newly founded companies to help them go from sort of where they're starting at the origin into this perspective, this new form of business, this more, um, you know, human-driven form of business? Is that sort of the core of where you're operating with Radical Purpose right now? Exactly, exactly. Trying to figure out how do we um, explain and work with individuals to change that narrative? Because if, if the language doesn't change, if the narrative doesn't change, we can't change the physical aspect. Yeah. Because it's the story itself that's binding us to the system. Mm-hmm. right it's it's not just the system that exists yeah there is the interplay there's this cycle of the system is what it is it's our I willingness to perpetuate in, it and our and i believe in the system and yeah. so therefore we're there so we have to both be able to disassemble that narrative replace it with a narrative that is about life itself and then build new ways of organizing that are one they're human right two they're distributed right we don't need centralization now we're both educated enough and we have the technology at a local level at an individual level that will allow us to organize without having to go up to somebody else in order to organize ourselves. Right. The system of organization that we have today was built a hundred years ago when most people who were working were working in a factory and had just left the field. They had no education. So you needed that structure. Unfortunately, we perpetuated that same narrative, even though 
80% of us are way educated. Much and, more, and more capable, by the way, to much your more point, like, how much more could we do? Oh, my gosh, I could go off for hours on this. But how much more could we do if people were given the freedom, to your point, to actually operate with the level of capability and purpose that we have right. versus being confined to the way that this is done here? Because people right. don't want to hear your ideas. They want you to just do what you're supposed to do. Exactly. Exactly. So imagine, and I know we got to go, but no, no, I, so, I'm fine with letting it go. If you've got the time, I, I really, I'm, this is a great conversation. So imagine that you're a young person leaving university today. It would, it would have been great if you had this narrative early on in your life, but you don't, mm-hmm. but at least you've got this, this narrative now. And you, instead of going to work for a corporation, work with someone else on these new radical terms. Yeah. Right. And you have this language and you have this narrative about life. And then you work with another group that traditionally would be either a a contract type relationship, but you have the same terms. And then you work with the next group and the next group. And what we end up doing is creating networks that are interdependent. Yeah. In other words, Today, if you have a client, you work for them. If they're no longer your client, you don't care because they're, it's not advantageous. The narrative says they're not your client. Screw them. Go help somebody else. Who is your client? Right. Or they work in your organization. Right. How many of us worked for an organization is like, yeah, working here is pretty cool. It's okay. It's fine. And the day we leave, we're like, Bad mouthing the hell out of it. Oh right? yeah, I said the, the the last company that I left. I said this is the first job I've ever left where I haven't been like two middle fingers up. Good luck <laughs> with that, you know. <laughs> right, and that's the thing is that that narrative only supports us so that we can stay sane within that context. Mm-hmm. What we need to do is be able to stay sane all the time, mm-hmm. and to do that, we need to have relationships that are ongoing and relationships that are beneficial. And so, building a network. And I know I'm I'm kind of drawing on this a little bit too far here because it really requires a, a longer conversation to describe this. I'm open but, to having another one, though. Let's be clear. <laughs> if you if you want to have it, I will do this all day long. <laughs> so the idea is is just to leave you with this. It's not only is it about understanding that we have those lenses and that we need to flip those lenses out of the way and have a new narrative about ourselves, but it is also to realize that. We can't hold that new narrative by ourselves. Yeah, We need to have others in our lives. And work is the thing that we do the most. So if we can start there, then they can carry through to our households, to our neighborhoods, to our community governments, to our regional governments, our state governments, yeah. and our federal government. It needs to start at the bottom rather than impose things from the top. And so if we can have these conversations and realize that when we start to organize and that we can build an organization that is made up of people with the right narrative, then that can spread like wildfire because we are there to help the next one and the next one and the next one. It's not about competing with each other. That's the point I'm trying to make. I love it. Right? And so if it's a network of, of reciprocity, I almost couldn't say the word, uh, then 
then it's my to my advantage to help you because you're going to help me. Right. But not with and, the um but not with the mindset of I'll do this so you do that. It's more to your point, it's about the service and the and the fulfillment of like that part of who we are as human beings. Exactly. And that level of creation I think ends up creating a society that is both more about life than about money and uh, can actually provide us with the same level, if not better, level of standard of living. I mean, we, definitely we better. Have definitely better. We can have both is my point, right? It's not, you know, a lot of the people that are talking about how does this world collapse, which is we're in the midst of, how does this world collapse and not have us um, go into feudalism again, right? Some some nightmarish hellhole. It, it can. I think we can do it if we as individuals decide to do it for ourselves and for each other and not expect that the systems will actually save us. Oh, my gosh. I could not agree with you more. That is a great way to wrap the episode. Jose, you are so insightful, knowledgeable, and just honestly, because this is an issue and and conversation that is just so near and dear to me on a personal level um, throughout my career and into where I am now with the podcast and feeling like I'm really fulfilling that part of my purpose is just, it's such an honor to be able to share the mic with you and to feel so enlightened coming out of this conversation. Like this is not a topic that I'm unfamiliar with. It's something that I've also done a fair amount of digging into on my own journey, but I I walk away from this conversation feeling so hopeful because with people like yourself doing what you're doing and the team that you have at Radical Purpose and the information that you're sharing, more than anything, the information that you're sharing, because if people don't hear it and they don't know it, they're not looking for it on their own. Like, please go to RadicalPurpose.org. Check out the work that Jose is doing with his team. If you have a small business that's growing, reach out to them, see if you guys can collaborate. Definitely take the purpose profile. I love seeing the results. It it feels like it just, it's accurate. It hits close to home. Like you get a sense of, you know, yes, I see myself through the lens of this, but more than anything, Jose, just thank you for doing what you're doing to help us evolve and to help us change the narrative because it's really just so admirable. And I, like I said, I just, I, to reiterate, it just, it gives me hope. And I feel like right now, a lot of us really need that. Well, thank you for spreading the word and thank you for, for the kind words. I would say one of the things that I'm come to the realization is it takes living a life to get to a point where some of this stuff makes sense. But it's not people my age and older that are going to make this difference. It's young people like yourself and younger. Well, that's nice and for so, calling me young too. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but but the truth is that you know most of my generation will not come to the to the realization of this new. I think that's one of the harder parts being in the position that I'm in because I feel like the younger generation is on it and I'm not part of that. Like I feel like I'm that middle generation that was sort of like, it seems like things are fine. And then it's like, well, shit's not fine. This is not good. We have surpassed what we should have. This is not okay. And now we're trying to make the changes, but it's really to your point, it's the younger generations who are like, we are growing up with this, recognizing the changes happening now. And right. so it is 
I think our duty as those younger generations to not just try to share that knowledge and um, express these important points to people within those age brackets, but to also raise that upward to our parents and the people in our lives who need to hear it, even if it's uncomfortable. But, you know, I go back to the car thing, right? Um, Most older people didn't buy a car. It was the younger people that did. It was the new families that did. So I think the work that you're doing, the generation that you are a part of and the younger generations, that's where our future lies, right? Um, The narratives are really well established in most people my age. Very true. Right. And changing those narratives is very, very difficult. I had to go through what I went through to get to that point. And that was a choice, by the way. You made that decision for yourself. It wasn't like somebody sold you on making that decision. You you felt that and you pursued it. And I think that's important to acknowledge because a lot of people are just like, well, it is what it is. Right. Right. And I think the beauty of the work that you're doing with with this kind of conversation is part of what we need to do as a society is have these conversations at a younger and younger and younger level and help one another pass it down. Because if a five-year-old could understand about radical purpose, could have that narrative, their world has changed. And so it's ours. I just got goosebumps. I love that so much, Jose. And I have a five-year-old niece and a three-year-old nephew. So the thought running through my head is, how can I make this palatable for the five-year-old and the three-year-old, right? It's like, I that's such a, a really important point to make. And I appreciate saying that because I do think sometimes I get hung up on trying to convince my dad of things that he's probably not going to be convinced about. And like, right. you know, I, I speak to him in the way where it's like, well, think about what this means for your grandkids, for my niece and nephew. And it is so much about raising them into that so that they understand that that's the lens through which they can look and that their potential doesn't need to be constrained. Absolutely. And guess what? When they're the ones that are already living that new lens, then your father and others will go and see, oh, what are they seeing that I'm not seeing, right? They can't be convinced, but they can then explore after the fact. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The observation of it is, you know, it's funny that you said that, too, because I do feel like that is the most that I I witness my dad um, or even my in-laws like kind of grasp new things that my wife and I are trying to kind of bring to their attention. It's like a little skepticism initially and then something happens and they're like, oh, well, I see it that way now. And you're like, "Okay, all right. Can't can't lead a horse to water or you can lead a horse to water. Right. You can't make them drink. Just like bring them into the conversation, help them see it more objectively. And then I think it helps really change that. So I appreciate that perspective. Yeah. Sorry. I kept going for a while. Please don't apologize. (laughs) I honestly this is it's such a great conversation, Jose. I've just enjoyed your company so much and the conversation with everything you brought to it. So, gang, that's all for this episode. Uh, that's all for this episode of who the fuck and we'll catch you on the flip side thanks for listening to who the fuck and if you like what you hear share the show with your friends family coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts it's always appreciated and you can also visit who to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content 
Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast.